Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Alan Paul is an author and a musician. His life has wound up centering around the guitar as he was the managing editor of Guitar World magazine for years. He plays guitar in a band called Woody Allen, spelled differently, that he formed in uh, Beijing, China, when he lived over there. Wrote a book about that, a memoir about his experience, um, a, you know, finding acclaim in the world of rock and roll in China. He has written... A number of books, most recently um, a biography of the Allman Brothers, and he is a badass in the world of journalism, music journalism, and guitar writing. I didn't quite know what to expect. He is not the most obvious candidate for a wheels-off interview, but I'm so glad that I spoke to Alan about his experience in these two worlds. And I think what we wound up with is a conversation that has a lot of really, really useful advice and wisdom about a life spent as a creative person, um, a creative life. And there are a lot of different paths, you know, and the thing that, that I think that you will find in this interview, the thing that struck me the most is the idea that sometimes there's a lot of value in flexibility in in your life. I mean, certainly in your art as you're making it moment by moment, but in your life when you're making the bigger decisions that, that you look back on uh, that sort of determined the trajectory of your life. I think there's a lot to be said for going with the flow, for accepting uh, alternate routes that you might not have envisioned to begin with. Anyway, I think Alan brings a lot of unexpected, um, certainly by me at least, wisdom uh, to this conversation, this ongoing wheels-off conversation about how to live a creative life. I'm really glad I got to speak with him, and I think you're really going to enjoy listening to this episode of Wheels Off. Please welcome Alan Paul. Welcome to Wheels Off, Alan Paul. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Rhett. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course, for the edification of our listeners, from where are you logging in? I'm logging in from my home in Maplewood, New Jersey. Oh, cool. Yeah. Other um, side of New York as you, I think. I know. I've got I've got friends in Maplewood. That's a fun little town full of full of bands. In fact, full of bands, full of musicians, writers, photographers, journalists, et cetera. 
Nice. Well, congrats on the new book. Thank you very much. That's so exciting. How long have you been working on this one? Um, well, sort of like forever. Yeah. <laughs> actively about uh, two years, um, which not in, which I guess doesn't include the last year of sort of wrapping it up and, and having turned it in and waiting for it to come out. So almost three years, really, since I started working on it. It's funny. I always talk um, about this with people awaiting the release of albums, but it's tr similarly true of uh, authors. Is that period of having something in the can but unreleased, is that nerve-wracking? It's a little bit less nerve-wracking now because this is my fourth book, but um, so a little bit less so every time. But it, it is, and it can be frustrating and annoying. And, and you know, years ago, long before I was writing books or, or recording music myself, I was interviewing musicians. And you know, like you, mostly for Guitar World, but for many others as well. And so many musicians would say to me, you know, I'd be excited about a, a song or a guitar part or something. And they'd say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, I can barely listen to that anymore. I wish I had done this or that. And I, I understood it intellectually, but I didn't really get it um, until I started, you know, doing more longer term creative work myself, including, you know, recording an album and and, and but more to the point, these books. Um so it, that is something that can be interesting. Um, even when the book comes out and you do an interview and somebody will seize on something they really like. And of course, all you should say is thank you very much. Um, but it's really hard not to think, oh my God, that's that paragraph that should have been a chapter and I blew this and I missed that interview. Or, you know, you you hear and know all the flaws that nobody else does. So um, during this period is when you sometimes reflect on those things and then try to move past them. Um, since this has been in the can for so long, do you have a another creative project that you're working on now? And, and um, no, yes and no. I mean, I always have a few things I'm working on, but I'm not definitively working on anything. Um, my, my very first book, um, Big in China, was a memoir about spending four years, three and a half years in China with my family and forming a blues band with Chinese guys and touring. And um, it's a fascinating book to me. I mean, it, it's obviously close to me because it's the only one that's about me and my life and my perceptions rather than um, a biography of others. And so much has changed uh, since it came out and I have more perspective. So I've gotten the rights back to that and I've been slowly working on an updated and expanded version of that. Um, I actually was before I started on this, which had a time element. So, uh, I, you know, planning on going into that more full time, but who who knows? I, I thought that before this one. So anything's possible. Um, doing the research before I talked to you, I, I noticed that the, the film rights had been sold at one point for that. Is that something that you thought might really happen? Did you ever work on a screenplay yourself? <laughs> yeah. So that's Big in China was uh, optioned by Ivan Reitman, uh, who has since passed away um, in, in just in the last few years um, in his Montecito productions. I did think it might happen. I mean, uh, anyone who's who's ever written or known people who write books uh, know that it's pretty common for things to get optioned and nothing ever happens. Um, in fact, that used to be even more common when there was more money flying around and people, they would just option everything they could think of. Um, and so I was totally aware of that when, when, when I made the deal, but um, he wasn't, he was a guy who usually tended to buy one or two things at a time and actually work on them. So there was a lot of progress made. Um, I signed away the right to work on the screenplay for better or worse. I, I went for the money. Um, my attitude at the time was, uh, it's probably not going to happen anyhow. I'd rather get the most money I can. Yeah. Uh, just being really honest, uh, nobody ever talks about the commercial aspects <laughs> of art, but I had three young kids then and, um, yeah. you know, 
a, a tenuous artistic existence. And uh, honestly, that 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 money has helped pay for my three kids to go through college. So I don't have any regrets about that. And in fact, that is what happened. Um, it never got made. I got pretty uncomfortable with the screenplay they were working on. Um, but it, it it made it to the point of being pre-production and and uh, the studio rejected the screenplay. Um, and then the whole thing just sort of just fell apart. Oh, no. Did they just take too many liberties and made it crazy in the name of um, Yeah, basically. And 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 um, it, it was like 80 percent accurate right up to the point where they took wild liberties, which in a way made me more uncomfortable if it had just been, you know, completely fictional from the start. Um, I could have had much more plausible deniability to make people believe it wasn't real, but um, it's okay. So, you know, I I still think it's a great story and, um, you know, I'd love to see it ever have a cinematic life um, just, just because I think it's a a valuable story. We didn't realize at the time, I mean, there was no way to realize that we were actually in China during this absolutely golden age. Um, we thought that that things were opening up. I say we, I'm, I'm really speaking about the broader community of expats and journalists, and there were always uh, naysayers, um, and, and they really turned out to be more right, I, you know, I have to say, because most of us really felt that um, it was this golden era right before things were just about to open up and, and you know, China was going to just become you know, much different. And it turned out we were actually at the peak of openness, not the beginning of the opening. So, um, you know, the perspective I have now is that we really were very, just very, very, very lucky to be where we were when we were with who we were with. And what an incredible experience to be able to be, you know, a, a musician and, you know, highly regarded, get to do big shows and stuff. Yeah, thank you. And well, to be honest, um, even more so than that is, um, I, I mean, I certainly had played guitar for a long time, um, but I was much more of like a basement jammer or get up and play at parties, sitting with friends, bands. I mean, I had certainly been on stage, um, but not as the front person um, and not as even playing, you know, not as my own band touring. And um, I never would have done that if I hadn't been in China. Um, it was really just a chance meeting with this incredible slide guitar, a uh, lap steel player named Woody Wu. Um, and he, you know, we we jammed one time and he was encouraging. He was really great. I mean, he is really great. He could come in here and, and play with you guys. He could, I, I mean, I, I hear tracks all the time at, at you know, like I give you a peach festival. Here's someone and be like, God, if these guys had Woody on lap steel, they would really <laughs> blow up. He's a fantastic musician. And the fact that he liked my playing and singing and encouraged me is the only reason I, I did that. And so, I've been back from China for almost 15 years now, 14 years, and I've performed, you know, I don't know, hundreds of gigs since then. Um, and never would have done any of that if, if I hadn't been there and had that experience. I, th- I think I probably would have remained, a, you know, a party jammer, not a, a gigging musician. So, um, you know, he opened it opened up a whole new world for me. And I think, you know, I still never stopped considering writing to be my primary vocation and and skill. Um, but I do think um, I'm able to talk and write to and write about musicians much, much better now, having spent so much time uh, touring, you know, gigging, and then to some extent touring. And so then with my band Friends of the Brothers over the years, uh, we've stepped it up a notch and now I've played festivals. I've served as the tour manager, the manager, the booking agent. Uh, we do have an agent now, which I'm happy about, but I have done all those things. And sometimes they're horrible to have to do. 
Um, but I do feel like I have a, a more of a 360 and realistic version of, you know, a musician's life now, which is, is helpful. It's so funny that your, your career as an author has been so guitar centric, right? That's, that's a, a, a fair assessment, right? Yes. Uh, um, I wonder when you were first envisioning how your, you know, as a kid, how your adult life might unfold, did you imagine that you would be a musician? Did you imagine that you'd be an author, both? Did yeah, you um, a, a that's, that's moment? a good question. I mean, probably an author, yes. A musician, no. Um, mostly because uh, I always have loved music and was drawn to music. I had a lot of friends in high school who were musicians. And I made the mistake um, pretty early, like certainly by late in high school and early in college of thinking, gee, it's too bad I never like became a musician instead of because you know, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to get a guitar and say to my friends, teach me a G chord, you know, and then see, which is what I eventually did. But I mean, I could have done it much earlier. Um, and so I guess I sort of thought, oh, well, that ship has sailed. But I always was around, I always, uh, you know, starting in college, I started playing a bit. And um, when I was 24, I was hired as the managing editor of Guitar World, um, which was, you know, thanks to Brad Talinsky, um, who also is the guy who gave me the idea, essentially, for this book, Brothers and Sisters. So um, Brad has remained a great friend and, and inspiration and, and, you know, friend, mentor, everything uh, for, for decades. He hired me really out of the blue. I, I was just giving up because um, I, had, I had just struggled so much for three years um, I think the year before I had made like $10,000 and, you know, was doing all kinds of odd jobs. Um, and I just thought, well, you know, I gave this a writing thing a work. My world didn't quite work out. I was applying to graduate school to become a teacher and figured I would keep, you know, writing on the side. Um, Brad just, you know, it was a lot of work that went into how, the, you know, Brad discovered found me and everything. But, you know, he just hired me to change my life. I never thought that guitar would be, you know, I, I was very, very insecure about my guitar knowledge when I started at Guitar World. Um, I would have thought it would come more from, you know, Rolling Stone or when I was younger, like Cream or Crawdaddy, which were no longer viable when I was starting a career. But that was more the angle I was coming from. Um, but Brad's attitude at that point was they had too many guitar people and they needed literary people um, who who were attuned to music. I mean, I did play guitar. I did have, you know, I had been around bands. I knew I wasn't completely oblivious at all, um, but but I wasn't a real guitar guy the way everyone else there was. But that's what made me so insecure. And so I bought some new uh, guitar in gear and took lessons for the first time, real lessons instead of just a friend like teaching me some things and and improved. You know, that was, I still was terrible. You know, even as I started to be okay, there were so many people at Guitar World who were incredible players that I was still really insecure about, you know, I didn't want to play in front of people. Um, you know those people anyhow. Oh, yeah. I would go it's hard to overcome that, you know, it's like being the little brother. You know, no matter what you grow up to, you're still the little brother when you're with your big brother. It was that type of thing. But you brought writing chops like nobody else. And then you can learn technical stuff about yeah, guitar. Yeah, and that was but... Brad's genius. You know, um, Guitar World for years had had been sort of like um, the third-rate guitar magazine because Guitar Player was was the, the, the granddaddy that invented it. And they were still really good. Um, and they were more serious players. And then Guitar for the Practicing Musician was coming around then. And they were growing because they were pretty weak editorially, but they had transcriptions. 
Um, they uh, piped that. And so they started grabbing that audience. So Brad um, became the editor. He had this vision to triangulate the whole thing. Like, let's raise our editorial standards so that we're like Rolling Stone caliber uh, journalism. Let's do transcriptions. Let's do them, find the best transcribers and hire them, do them better than guitar practicing musician. And we'll do the tech stuff and the lesson stuff, but we'll keep it separate, like sidebars from the Rolling Stone caliber that was the goal editorial and he switched over to doing mostly q a's instead of prose initially out of frustration because the caliber writers he had to deal with wasn't good enough he felt to, to write the articles that he wanted so he thought well if we just get a q a you know if we can just get people to do good interviews and it became sort of our our featured uh trait and then you know we all work together so it, it was great you know it was like i mentioned about china being there at the right place at the right time i i feel like with guitar world i was just there at the right place at the right time really exciting time in guitar and rock and roll and in, in journalism still magazine journalism so um yeah I, I i've been really fortunate on on these things to just you know keep my antenna my eyes open and my antenna up and 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 just be lucky about right place right time um yeah i feel like if any anybody that i talk to that's managed to eke out a career in a creative field uh, said you know claims to have been very lucky but 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 i think there's a lot of work that sets you up to be lucky probably yeah thank you absolutely i mean th th that's definitely true i prefer the word fortunate sometimes to yeah lucky. Because lucky is like finding a $20 bill. You didn't like necessarily do anything. Um, so, yeah, I definitely worked hard and I worked at my craft and I was good and I and all that stuff. But but still, you need to ha have the good fortune of the right people, the right time, the right place. Um, and for me, uh, as it turned out, the right wife, you know, my wife had a stable job. Um, you know, I was at Guitar World for years, but when I left there full time and went freelance, um, I had the cushion with having kids of having a wife who had benefits. Um, another thing I think people don't talk about honestly enough, but, um, you know, I mean, geez, how many musicians do you know with that same story? Most, most of them in my world and probably, yeah, you know, that's fine. That's cool. You know, God bless them. Um, and, you know, those of us who are, are, are good, you know, good. I think we, we provide a, our own, you know, we help take care of things too. It's not like we're, whatever schnorz to use the yiddish word but you know what i mean so you described your early 20s pre the guitar world opportunity arriving um and the sort of wrestling with what you're going to do and are you going to go to grad school um and i imagine that you know as you've described a career that's bounced between a few different things and a few different large projects um there must have been times when you uh suffered anxiety for instance or maybe you had a lot of doubt about you know your whether or not you were doing the right thing maybe you had um negative voices in your head telling you that you weren't good enough or that wasn't going to work um everybody i've ever spoken to about this stuff you know has admitted to having some sort of interior uh, internally generated obstacles that they've had to overcome and i wonder in your case what secrets have you figured out to get past those well, that's a good question. Um, so first, just the first word you used is anxiety. Um, and I have so many friends and, and relatives who have, you know, actual clinical anxiety. And of course, it's it's so common. 
Um, and I, I don't have that. Um, so that is the first thing that's not a secret. It's just that again, it's just luck. You know, that's genetics. I mean, I, I don't think it's a weakness or, or a strength or anything. It's just, it's just, again, that's, that's really good luck. Um, now, having said that, of course, there's periods of anxiety in the broader sense. I just wanted to separate the, the, the two. It's like saying you're depressed. Um, I mean, we all go through periods of like that, but it's not clinical depression. And, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I've just seen too many close people to me suffer with clinical anxiety and depression that I, I want to be really like clear about that, that, that again, it's just good fortune. Um, you know, it's, it's really tough. Um, uh, partly, uh, self-confidence that sometimes is misplaced and, and you can go pretty far down a road and that's where the real anxiety can set in where you go, why was I so confident this was going to work out? I'm down a blind alley. Um, but just to, to take a little broader thing, it's it's similar to a question about people, people always ask if I get really nervous writing books or hit um, writer's block um, and how you deal with that. And and it's the same thing in, in a broader thing. Of course you do. The only way it gets easier um, to me is, is a little bit of confidence that it will work out. Because the first, you know, each time you hit this thing where you're down a dark alley and you go, oh, my God, I've got um, nine weeks left. And this thing that I thought was about to pay off is a bust and I got to like backtrack and delete these hundred pages or whatever. Um, it, it, that that still happens. Uh, I'm a little, a little less on this book, actually. But uh, the, the anxiety of, oh, my God, I'm dead. And it, it, it gets better. And I feel the same with the broader picture. Um you know, my wife has had this big career and I've gotten a lot of kudos um, for supporting her. Like I, but, but the, the truth of it is um, every time I did something that seemed like a big um, sacrifice for her and her career over a period, sometimes quickly, sometimes over a few year period, it paid off and it ended up being this like great opportunity for me. So after a few of those, I started to have a little faith, like this, this will be okay. I mean, I, you know, one was I moved to Florida with her when we were just dating. Um, I, I had lost, I had a job my first year out of college at a little newspaper in Hoboken that it ended. I had a part-time job off from Putnam, New York. She had a job in Tampa and I just said, Oh hell with it. Finally, she was my girlfriend. She wasn't, um, you know, we were serious obviously, but it's not like we were engaged or anything. And I just went down there um, and I, it was tough at times, but it ended up being this incredible experience for us. We've had this great marriage like that. That's so important to me and everything else I've done. And um, because I, I struggled, I didn't make much money, but living was really cheap and I really honed my craft as a writer. And that just as I was giving up through after some other stuff led to the guitar world thing Then after five years at guitar world of uh, six years, almost as the managing editor, she got a job at the Wall Street Journal, but it was in Detroit and I quit my job and moved there. But I was getting really burned out on the, being the managing editor and I was looking for other ma editor magazine jobs. And if I had gotten one of those, I think I would have hated it and burned out after a couple of years. So I just had more time to write. So again, I devoted myself to writing. Then when I was getting like, you know, two early 2000s, I had three little kids and I was just like, my wife now has this career at the Wall Street Journal and I'm still writing for Guitar World. And I was sort of like, oh, I'm interviewing Warren Haynes for like the hundredth time. Like, 
really shouldn't i be doing something else now but that was like this brief interlude eventually i you know the relationships i built with people like warren from interviewing them so many times you know that paid off and led to all this other stuff um it's, it's hard for me to believe that i ever resented that um but there was a, a period where i was just like felt really really stalled um and i was cranking stuff out and and then the China, the big one, I quit, you know, I had a staff writer job at Guitar World and Slam Magazine. I quit them both to move to China uh, for my wife's job. And that opened up like this whole new world for me, not only the music that we discussed, but I wrote a column about living as an you know, expat. I, I covered the Olympics for NBC Sports. I did all these things. And, and again, each of these came after like, and I got I got all these kudos for like sacrificing for my wife, which is I think just like a form of sexism because the women never really get that if they sacrifice for their man. And I had this huge, these huge payoffs. So I don't know. It's just kind of keeping faith. I, it's easy to look back and see a lot of places where you could have gone, you know, off the road, but didn't. So that then it's just being thankful. <laughs> it's funny it, listening to you talk about this. It reminds me of the way in um, music that's, you know, primarily kind of jam based where people are playing off of each other in the moment and creating parts as they play. It it sort of makes me think of the way that you're approaching these big decisions in your life. It's kind of like that. It's as if you're taking what comes to you and rolling with it and making the best out of that and and not having some predetermined idea of how it has to go and then being really strict about following that, making everybody else, you know, follow your vision. Does does that seem yeah, fair? Thank you. Yeah, that's a really good summary. I like that. <laughs> thank you. I didn't really frame it that way, but it reminded me, you know, when I started playing with um, the Chinese, the, the Chinese musicians. Um, so the original guy was Woody Wu. We went through a few different rhythm sections. And once we got a little more, be a little better, a little more serious, Woody brought in this guy, a bass player named Zhang Yang, a drummer, Lu Wei, um, who are, they were incredible musicians. I mean, again, these guys could come here and drop into almost any band and, and change the nature of the rhythm section, the nature of the, I mean, they're, they're excellent. Um, what they didn't really know how to do was play in the moment and improvise. And they certainly were capable of it. It's just that they hadn't really, they thought of that as something that happens in jazz. All of them had, uh, especially um, John Young, the bass player, had played a fair amount of jazz and was very well acquainted with the concept of improvisation, um, but not in in a sort of pop, rock, blues song structure. Um, and so... It took me a while to realize that because um, we were first were just really jammy and, you know, we show up. And then when we sort of realized we had something, we started rehearsing and we really put arrangements on songs, you know, have some beginnings ends, breakdowns, all, you know, arrangement. And um, then slowly started writing original music. After our after those initial shows like that, Woody was sort of, you know, uh, you know, we had pulled off this show in the biggest venue we had played yet. And I thought it was great. And 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 I, we we're packing up and Woody seemed kind of down. And I said, I mean, we did it, you know, it's just and he said, yeah, but like we're, we're sort of like lacking something now. It feels a little stiff, you know, and I said, yeah, because Woody, we we were like we had this like appeal that people liked because we were less like playing off each other, pulled people in. But it was sloppy and things would fall apart. And now we've tightened it up. Now that we've tightened it up, we have to loosen it back up so that we get that we can do it. And he and and, and I realized that they didn't conceptually understand that. Um, I, I really had a hard time explaining that. 
I came from such a, a background with um, the Allman Brothers, the Grateful Dead, um, and many other bands, uh, offshoots of that. I mean, you could, you know, the Burrito Brothers, anyone, you know, you could think of a million bands that we all know, the band, who are going to play like that. So, um, yeah, I burned them some uh, Allman Brothers CDs <laughs> and brought it in, and some Grateful Dead, I think, and then I just... You know, and we would do the arrangements as, as when we were starting to write songs too. They'd say, "You know, how long are you going to solo here?" And I said, "Well, let's set the normal at twenty-four bars, but um, you know, if you're not feeling it at twelve, you know, just put your guitar neck up and get out. If you're feeling it at at eighteen and you want to keep going, you know, give a little signal and go thirty-six, go forty-eight, take it, you know, swap them back and forth. And 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 at first they were like, "Yeah, but how long should it be?" You know. <laughs> And they took to it, I mean, beautifully. But it was it was amazing to me. That was, again, part of my insecurity of like that, you know, um, I'm, I'm not, you know, there's such better musicians than me, so I need to just like try to keep up, um, which was sort of true initially. But then I realized I have so much I can teach them. And then it became, that's when it really became a band. And it was, was incredible to be able to, I, I don't know how to explain it, like, that was one of the incredible things about playing music um, there and with those guys. You know, there would be no opportunity in America then, you know, to find like guys in their 30s who are that good and well versed in this kind of music who have never heard the Almond Brothers. You know, yeah. you might not like them, you may not be influenced by them, but never heard them. They, they realize that it's like, oh my God, okay, this is like a tabula rasa. I can. Uh, <laughs> And and it was incredible. And they they had great musical taste and and sort of great musical knowledge, but it was random. Like they would know certain songs and really like them. But you know, I view the world through this like, you know, music critics, Rolling Stone, Encyclopedia of Rock thing of, you know, who came from what. I mean. You know, you had the Hourglass and you had the Allman Brothers. They were influenced by Muddy Waters. Muddy Waters also influenced the Rolling Stones. And, you know, I, that's I see my world in these family tree charts. And these guys just heard songs and liked them, but they had no context. And, you know, it was, it was fascinating, really, really fascinating. That's when it became sort of a beautiful relationship. Um, and I have tried, I, I, I guess, you know, I hadn't really thought of my whole life in that realm the way you framed it but um i certainly thought of that part of my life in that realm and um it does it does sort of make sense and maybe that's why i've been able to relate to this music and these musicians is it just as an approach it, it, it makes sense to me yeah i think there's something so beautiful about the way musicians approach life because you know the instinct is so important in, in to a musician right like what's the next note what's the next lyric what's the next you know, movement in the arrangement. <clears throat> and I, I've noticed in, um, you know, so many of my friends who are musicians in their lives, they tend to be more likely to follow their instincts and make brave choices or stupid choices or choices that other people, more uptight, straight world people might not make. Yeah. And it's interesting when you do that as a parent to try to, <laughs> to try to reach. That's <laughs> why so I could write a whole other book about, about that. Um, but it, it, it is interesting, like, you know, you teach your kids um, somewhat when they're little to to be skeptical of the man, you know, and then eventually they get to be adolescents and, you know, you realize you're the man. Yeah. <laughs> you raise them to rebel against you <laughs> to find that happy medium. You played yourself. 
Um, so I wonder, because you've got such a, a unique perspective on this, having uh, been in a band and, and, and playing as a musician with other people, and also having written books by yourself. I mean, and obviously, when you're writing biography, there's a collaborative element with all of your sources and your... But, uh, but you've also written books as a collaborator. I wonder, um, what is what is it like to write as a collaborator versus uh, make music as a collaborator? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, well, some of the same skills are required, but but it's it's very different because writing music as a collaborator, and for me, in my experience, usually comes on the fly. Um, even when you do, then. Um, stop, pause, and and it becomes the arrangement. And obviously, there's an element of really like breaking it down and playing something over and over. But for me, the way the way the collaboration usually works best is on the fly, and then you codify it. Um, that that's what works for me. Um, write, writing a book as a collaborator is much more moment by moment, brick by brick. Um, in some ways, more excruciating, but. But there is a similarity uh, for sure, which is just the concept that something can be really personal to you, but you still don't have total ownership of it. And it can be better with someone else's input and you have to be open to that. Um, that that can be a hurdle in either front. Um, the, the book you're talking about is on um, Texas Flood. This mm -hmm. is my biography that I co-wrote with Andy Allador. Um, and, and Andy has been a, a friend and colleague um, from Guitar World for you know, 30 years and, and and we play in Friends of the Brothers together. We sort of founded it together. So we've collaborated on a lot. Um, Andy is stubborn as a mule, as he'll readily admit. Um, so we we butt heads, but also we do have decades of friendship behind it. And so we know like, we can say things to each other, you know, <laughs> that you, you know, if you and I started working on a book after we'd gotten, gotten to know each other, I mean, I'd be more careful with you because until, until I got to know you, um, I know what I can say to Andy without offending him and vice versa. And, when, you know, we can get mad at each other and, and make up. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's hard to collaborate on a book. The, the upside of it, um, aside from, is, is it's just better and it's less lonely. I mean, writing a book is a very uh, intensely solo activity generally. Um, even though you do, of course, talk to a lot of people and you as you're writing it, that's, you know, you asked before about the anxiety and the insecurity. The biggest part of that for me is is the first part where like, um, I mean, it depends on the book, but let's just say roughly like the first hundred pages you write, you get into a groove, you know, you're very insecure at the very beginning, for sure. But it, but that's like baby insecurity because, you know, that's just nervousness. Then you start writing and you get into a groove. You feel really good about it. Um, this for me, anyhow, I'll go, OK, I got it. I got the voice. I got the storyline here. And you feel great and you invest months into something. Um, I don't generally want to show it to anyone until I'm pretty I have established the voice and the tempo and like where it's going to be. Um, then when you're waiting for feedback from someone reading it, that's where that's the most anxiety and insecurities come in because during that period, you start to think, wait a second, what if he comes back and says he doesn't like it? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble here. Um, and that hasn't, you know, luckily really happened to me. Um, but, but, uh, Brad Tolinsky again, from my friend from guitar world gave the, uh, first, I think six, seven chapters of brothers and sisters a read. Um, and he was really encouraging, but he saw one big hole, something that was missing. It was extremely helpful. Um, he was, 
hesitant to bring it up, but um, uh, he said to me, do you want me to be really honest? And I said, yes. And it was just missing some background information that he pointed out. Um, and, and once he said that, it made total sense to me. And um, there's a brief moment of, oh, no, I've got all this more work to do. But then once you go back and add, for me, this section, it it made everything else work. And so it was it was a great suggestion. Um, the other up, but the upside, I said, like I said, is writing a book can be really lonely. So um, when you're collaborating, it's almost like you have a copy editor going along with you. Um, and even though we would sometimes disagree and fight over whether something should be included or not, um, and sometimes each of us won at various points and took things out. Um, but it also it took away some of that insecurity because by the time you finish something, another person had already read it, you've already fought over it and you've made a decision. So um, that, that was, that was a, a big upside to it actually. Well, that's funny. So yeah, from the, from the different kinds of collaboration um, with a co-writer and then with these kids that we raise, I wonder if you'd be willing to try and distill some of this wisdom, like uh, imagine a 21 year old version of yourself, but in, 2023 um what advice do you think you might want to give this younger version of yourself um well one was the thing that i sort of stumbled on with the musicians in china which i mentioned which was um, be tight but loose um and you could apply i mean obviously in music that has a, a really uh I, th I think pretty easily understandable meaning which is be tight like be well rehearsed be know the songs know the riffs be in sync and be loose enough to like let it go where it wants to go on any given night and i think that sort of applies to life i mean you can't just completely improv your way through life um you're gonna i mean you, we the handful of people we all know who do that are legends right and you talk about them and sometimes it comes out great and sometimes they walk off a cliff but we all remember those people because it's kind of a wild way to live. Um, so I think you need to have some structure and and practice, be good at your chops, you know, like practice your chops, whether it's writing or music um, or just interpersonal relations. I mean, you have to like work at it. Um, you know, you have to like constantly have yourself in therapy <laughs> to some extent. Um, you don't have to literally be in therapy, although I think that's wonderful. If you have the time and money to do it, it's a great thing. Um, but uh, but but I mean, really, like just to be self-analytical and, and just be but but also to always be practicing. Um, there, there's really no fast track. So I think you, you can't be you have to be bold enough to leap at your chances and humble enough to just keep your head down and keep grinding. Um, that's one of the great things that I, I felt I benefited from coming up at Guitar World. Um, we, we were really, really scrappy. You know, um, we didn't get like the cover story with Keith Richards handed to us. We had to like ingratiate ourselves to people. And eventually we did start getting stuff, uh, you know, through the front door because we established ourselves. But we were really guerrilla and we were really hardworking. We had a passion for it. Um, so I, I think Nose to the Grindstone is really good and, and, I don't know. You got to be a little willing to take your lumps. And I love that. That I don't think anybody's put it that succinctly, but of course you you would as 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 the writer that you are. But uh, um, brave enough to leap at chances and humble enough to keep your nose to the grindstone. That's great. Yeah, thank you. I never. I just. I just said that on the fly. Uh, like I said, I'm best. I'm best off off the cuff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that is that is sort of how I feel. Um, 
I, I don't know. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh. I'm, you know, I'm from Pittsburgh. I went to public schools in Pittsburgh and, um, I, it's sort of who I am. And, um, I don't know, you know, that's something my wife and I've had a lot of, we, we have certain differences in our approach to careers and lives, but, um, we, she's from Bay city, Michigan, and she, you know, neither of us, as we've had various amounts of success and stuff in New York, we've always felt a little like interlopers and uh, we don't take anything for granted and we just work hard and, um, you know, try, we have tried to have each other's backs and that's the same thing with just friends and colleagues that you trust and respect bandmates, whoever, I think that's another important thing. I would, I would give it that advice to myself or to anyone is look for the, what, what was Mr. Rogers uh, advice? Look for the friendly people or something, you know, look for the helpers. Yeah. Look for the helpers. I mean, Hey, he had it. Uh, I grew up in Mr. Rogers actual neighborhood in Pittsburgh, by the way, but, um, yeah. I think that's really, that's it. Look for the helpers. I, I mentioned Brad Talinsky several times. I mean, we have had each other's backs for decades and we've helped each other. Um, I've helped him with a few books. He's been huge in my career. And there's been a few other people like that, Andy Allardort. I mean, we've had a multi-decade friendship and career and uh, we've helped each other. I mean, these things are not one-sided. It's sometimes you, you're you there for them. Sometimes they're there for you. And, and uh, you know, trust your instincts and also trust your trustees, your, your trusted people. Does that make sense? Totally. Oh my God. Yeah. This is great, Alan. I feel like there, there's so much useful stuff in this, this conversation that we've had. I really think people are going to love it. Thank you so much for joining yeah, me. Thank you. And thanks for, thanks for your podcast. I appreciate what you're doing and uh, exploring this sort of creative mind and how to make it into a life uh, in various forms is, is certainly obviously of interest to me, but I think it's valuable to, to a lot of people. So thank you. I love it. Well, it's funny. I took the guitar world um, format. I just let the uh, the voice of the artist do all the work. And then yeah, I said, thank you. But you have to ask the right <laughs> questions. I mean, I, I I know both sides of that one. So nice. All right. Thanks so much, man. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.